We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast is sponsored by Liquid Death. Are you thirsty? Parched? Do you like dark and eerie sinister names for your beverages? Then you'll love Liquid Death. Go to liquiddeath.com. Use the promo code BIGBLUE. Blue wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host, Nick Filato. It's mailbag time. We're doing some mailbag questions today. Giants coming fresh off the bye. Four-point favorites over the Texans. That number's dropped, I think, all the way from six, so... The money, I guess, is coming in on Houston. The Giants haven't had this feeling of being favorites yet this year, or at least big favorites. Actually, I don't know if they've ever been favorites this year. I'm not positive. They might have been, though. Don't quote me on that. But this expectation is they have to win this game. So it's a big game coming up. The Giants have to win this game. I stand by that statement. I said it earlier. I say it again. We don't have too many questions from the mailbag on this game, but we're still going to get to some of these questions anyway, or all these questions, and hopefully some of them touch on some of the things we've been thinking about this game. But Nick, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing excellent, Dan. I'm doing excellent. It's uh, it's good to be back in the grind of covering the New York Giants football bye week. It's all fun. Good to recoup. Good to refresh. I'm ready to see some Giants football, though. Yeah, me too. And also, Dan, for those watching on YouTube, he's drinking this spin drift, I think it's called. I mean, spin I don't drift. know why he's cheating. That's seltzer on the market. Uh, it's 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 seltzer adjacent, if we're going to be honest. It has, what, like 20 or 12 calories or something? I mean, 12 calories like, every can, know. three grams of sugar, real fruit juice, though, so real cat, like real natural sugar, okay? If it, if it doesn't taste like television static, then it is not seltzer water. <laughs> All I know is I told uh, Nick about this before, the, before we started recording. He's like, eh, I might try one of those and then, like, treat myself to one every, like, two months or so. <laughs> so. That's that's a 12 calories will do to you. Three grams of sugar is more than his usual intake. So anyway, let's dive into this right now. Let's start the mailbag off with a question from our good friend, William Walker, who has a golf backswing on Twitter and his Twitter avatar. And I and I look at that sometimes. And I envision when I've, I've been playing a little bit of golf lately, Nick. I played last Saturday with shout out Kevin and Steve Hall, listeners of the podcast, Kevin Appenzeller, Steve Hall, two of my good friends. Took me out on the course. They played great. I played okay. I actually played the best I've ever played. I'm starting to get really into it. But I see this guy, William Walker's backswing in his Twitter avatar profile. And I'm like, damn, I want that backswing. All right. I want to learn how to hit this freaking golf ball. So, William, maybe one day you'll teach me. But for now, you want to know, why do you attribute the new optimistic energy from the fan base surrounding Kenny Galladay? It seems like he's, or maybe he's just asking about Galladay himself. Because he says it seems like he's re-energized compared to earlier this season. 
Kafka's also making comments about how hard he's worked, etc. I think one reason, Dan, why we have this new refound energy around Kenny Galladay is just because we've seen the lack of talent at the wide receiver position behind Darius Slayton. And with Wondell Robinson, I don't really group him into this conversation. He's a rookie. He's primarily a slot. You know, you can have a lot of manufactured touches around the line of scrimmage to this individual. But I just think when we've seen, you know, David Sills get trotted out there, you know, numerous times, we look at Kenny Galladay and we say, well, I think he can offer more. And I also think Kenny Galladay has never played on a New York Giants team that has had optimism and that's right. not taking shots at Kenny Galladay as a competitor or anything like that. But we've heard Kenny Galladay say, and not press conferences, but you know, talking to the media saying I'm itching to get back out there. And we've also seen some positive plays from him blocking his ass off. Do I think he's going to be an explosive threat? No, I don't. But do I think he can add a little bit more from, from an outside receiver standpoint than the New York Giants have had. Yes, I do think he can do that over the likes of David Sills and maybe even Marcus Johnson, just because Marcus Johnson hasn't been able to catch the football. Also, I think Kenny Galladay can do okay on these RPOs, these quick slants. He can win yeah. inside off the line of scrimmage and just present a big target for Daniel Jones. So I think that is one reason why there's a profound optimism for him. But I also don't think the optimism is super high among Giant fans. I think we know that Kenny Galladay is not living up to this $72 million contract. Yeah, I think you nailed the why he's more energetic. I think, William, it has a lot to do with the Giants are good. Look, it, losing takes a toll on these guys. You saw Brandon Cooks. He needed a week off after he didn't get dealt to the trade deadline, and he came out today, and he was like, I just can't stand the losing. I've been with this team for a long time now, and they're just losing. So, I mean, look, the Texans have been a bad that location for him. These guys want to win. They want to play to win. And I think Galladay realizes now what he has in front of him, an opportunity to be an actual big impact impact contributor on a team that's six and two and needs his help. And that's the biggest factor here. As far as what he can give, that remains to be determined for me, Nick, because I just don't know if he has it anymore as far as an athletic for Like, I don't know if his body can give him what he needs to be to be the player he is. We'll find out, you know, because he was pretty good. He was okay last year. And I will say this about Galladay. I don't think, and me and Nick and I made this clear on multiple podcasts before this, but I don't think at any point, Nick or I questioned his, um, effort on the field. I know this is a big question among Giants fans on Twitter. A lot of people thought he didn't give effort. They put up some random clips and stuff that like didn't make sense. Like one was like an RPO to his side that like obviously he wasn't expecting to come his side. But from what I've seen, the effort was always there for him. So that wasn't the issue. The issue is, does he have what it takes anymore to create separation, to make plays in the passing game with what's left of, you know, his body after the hip surgeries? And that I don't know. That we'll find out. I know he's in playing through a knee injury now as well. So it's not like he's full. It's not like he's, you know, the freshest he's been, or maybe it, maybe it is the freshest he's been. We'll find out. I don't know. We don't have the extent of these injuries, but I'll say this. I don't, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the giants are winning and we'll see hopefully an impact player the second half because they can really use it. They can absolutely use it. I spend too much time thinking about the giants asks. No, so, do we. so do we way too much time. I have the same if, problem. <laughs> I think a lot of people listening to this podcast have that yeah. problem. If all of the offensive linemen are available on the roster, what would your ideal lineup be for the rest of the year? And I like this question a lot. Oh, this is a great question. Um, is the assumption that like, so what's the assumption of what we're going to get? So I'll ask on two players. One is the assumption here that we're getting like Nick Gates of old. And two is the assumption we're getting Shane Lemieux improved version of Shane Lemieux. I'll just go with the, this as the default, Nick, and you can answer this question however you would like. I'm going to go with we're going to get return of Nick Gates, 
the old what we got from him before the injury, and we're going to get the same from Lemieux though. What we got from with him before the injury. So remember, a lot of people seem to forget it. I don't know why, but Gene Lemieux was arguably the worst pass protecting left guard in the NFL during his rookie season, and a fifth round pick who has been inflated in some degree, in my mind at least by some fans. And that's okay. We do that with all of our players, right? It's just being part of being a fan. But for me to answer that question, it would be Thomas, a fully healthy Bradison, Gates, um, Glowinski, and Neil. Damn, that sucks because that's the same exact one that <laughs> I had. And I wanted to squeak Josh Azudu in there, but I do believe we've seen enough, I would say solid tape from Ben Bredesen that he has earned that right to be the left guard. I will say if Shane Lemieux has progressed his game, which it's plausible that he right. did. I mean, that was 2020 when he started and he wasn't great in pass protection. He hasn't seen many reps at all since then, but it's plausible that he has improved his game. But we haven't necessarily seen that. I've seen enough from Ben Bredesen to plug him in because I think if we're just talking about this season and not prognosticating into the future and talking about, you know, Joshua Zudu developing and all that kind of stuff, we're just talking about winning this season. I think Ben Bredesen is is the left guard to choose. And you have plenty of guys to choose from because if we do choose Nick Gates, you could still plug John Feliciano in at left guard. I still right. think I would lean Ben Bredesen, though. Yeah, I would lean Bredesen, too. I think that it sucks for Bredesen because he got hurt at the worst possible time. He was really starting to come on when he got hurt. Like, he was starting to make a big impact as a puller in the run game, and he was starting to clean up a lot of the pass pro issues. It was, like, all starting to click for Bredesen in this role, and then he got hurt. So the assumption for me is fully healthy. I would take a Bredesen over Lemieux, fully healthy. Now the question is, do you move Gates to guard and keep Feliciano, things of that nature? I still wouldn't do that. I'm not a huge Feliciano fan personally. I've seen a few things, a few nice flashes in the run game, but just too much of losing ground in the passing game for me. And I think Nick Gates was a good example of a player who didn't, that didn't happen often uh, when he was in pass pro. So that would be my, that would be both of our lines. Yeah. And one thing I'll say too about Feliciano, I love how Feliciano, how reactive he is as a blocker. And we've talked about it since before he was even on the Giants, back when he was with Buffalo, how he uses the snatch and trap whenever somebody's yeah. leaning too far into him. He's very reactive. And I love that about him. But when you have two guys, your center and your guard and Mark Lewinsky, your right guard who who struggle with anchor, then you're going to have a more compromised pocket for Daniel Jones. Cause there are times when both, you know, the three technique or the one shade, they'll both go into bull rushes and you'll see the pocket just kind of get pressed right up onto Daniel Jones's ankles. And I feel like sometimes Glowinski and John Feliciano do an okay job fanning those defensive linemen out to allow Daniel Jones to step up and rush. But there are times when Daniel Jones is just stepping into just an absolute mess because both of those guys' ankles anchors struggle with Nick Gates. Like you said, man, back when he was healthy and hopefully he can maintain this. If he gets back to playing a starter role here, he wasn't really getting pushed back all that much. That was not his issue. So I would like to have the interior part of the offensive line to be a little bit more sturdy, a little bit more sand in their ass to hold up against power rushers. Yeah, you nailed it. And we'll see what happens in the second half. All right. We also have from um, from the same guy from I would I, I spent too much time thinking about the Giants. He asks, "What would you like to see from the offense, or what would you like to see the offense do more or less of in the second half of the season?" I don't know if I'd like to see them do less of anything because they're overachieving, if you want to put it that way, at six and two. But in terms of more of, it's just more of a traditional passing attack, more of a. I can trust my passing attack downfield to create explosive plays. This is something Mike Kafka talked about. During the during the bye week, he said, well, at the beginning of this week, leading into week 10, he said that he that he needs to kind of go back to the drawing board and see why they're not 
getting these explosive plays downfield. Now we've watched the film. We've seen explosive play opportunities that have not been executed upon. So for me, it's just a more traditional passing attack. that's a little bit more sustainable and hopefully that can spark some explosive plays downfield. Yeah, I think you did a good job of breaking that down. I think what I would want to see a little bit more of is utilization of Saquon Barkley in the passing game. I want to see a few more. And we we saw a little bit of that with Green Bay, and it led to a big play. I want to see a little bit more of just a focus on getting him the football. And I and in the passing game and and more on design routes. So that could include screens. That could include the arrow routes. That could include, you know, just the simple route we saw against Green Bay, the switch route, anything of that nature that can free up Saquon Barkley or get him one-on-one against a linebacker specifically. That's what I'd be looking at seeing a little bit more of. Um, and then what I want to see from the passing game is simply Daniel Jones taking a few more shots downfield. Uh, you know, we've seen examples of him not pulling the trigger. We want to see him pull the trigger. We want to see him feel confident in his ability to get the ball down the field. And part of that is keeping, in my mind, the best three on the field. That would be Slayton, Wondell Robinson, and then to be determined. I hope that's Kenny Galladay as the third there to kind of, you know, figure out a way to get on the field often. But a little bit more confidence in the drop back pass game and a little bit more of a utilization of Saquon Barkley in the past game is what I would want to see. Yeah, I'm never going to argue with anybody suggesting that Saquon Barkley needs to be used in the passing game, especially against these teams that like to run cover one. If you can get him isolated against basically any NFL linebacker, it's going to be a mismatch if you get them isolated in space. Chris Clark asks a very interesting question. If you could choose between A, Lamar Jackson, or B, Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley for the same combined money this offseason, which option would you sign for the New York Giants? Yeah, so same combined money. Um, so you would get Lamar Jackson and like maybe like hopefully you would try to find like a Damian Pierce, right? Damian Pierce was drafted in round four. You, there's plenty of great running backs drafted in, in day two and three in the NFL draft just year after year after year, talent, talent, talent. So you would hope to then get somebody there or you kind of maybe give like, you know, the run of the mill guys or the guys they have on the roster an opportunity and just build out the offensive line and try to get one of those types of teams, right? Like I don't really personally find Miles Sanders to be that great of a talent, Nick, um, or any of those guys gain well, but the Eagles have arguably the most effective run game in the NFL because they have the best offensive line in the NFL. Uh, so you obviously know that, that there's some factors in that the offensive line. I hope we, we, I think we're all on the same page that the offensive line is still the, the big predictor and indicator of rushing success in the NFL. Um, so you look to do that. And so, Ultimately, you end up then getting Lamar and you replace running back or you get Jones and Barkley. So for me, the answer is Lamar over just Jones and Barkley. Um, Also, this factors in my thoughts on the potential of re-signing both Jones and Barkley if they are long-term deals. Well, depending on the guaranteed money, depending on the future injuries for both those players and both Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley have dealt with a lot of injuries over their career. Saquon Barkley plays a position that gets insanely injured all the time. He plays a position where we're now seeing studies that the shelf life, it's, it's dropping year by year. Now it's entering your age 27 season is when the big drop-off happens. Um, some, some great examples that are Todd Gurley and other players like that. Some players who have dropped off don't even have as extensive an injury history as Saquon Barkley. So you kind of get away from the idea of some dead money and some really bad contracts potentially down the line if Jones regresses or if Jones gets hurt again and starts to get hurt again. And and then if Saquon Barkley, if the injuries start to pop up or sap his effectiveness. So for me, it would be uh, pretty clear cut Lamar Jackson here. Yeah, it's not really even in consideration for me. It's Lamar Jackson. This is a former MVP who can do just unreal things with the football. And I've watched a lot of Lamar Jackson on broadcast because he's played in a lot of yeah, a lot of primetime games recently. And there are times where he misses throws that I know if if 
we covered him, we would be chastising. But even with that, he is just a lightning rod in terms of his ability with the football in his hands and what he can do with his arm. I mean, right now he already has 16 touchdown passes right. on the season, six interceptions, about 1,800 passing yards. And that's not even mentioning what he does with his legs. And I can imagine him in this offense yes. with Mike Kafka and Brian Dable and just think, holy crap, what the heck would those two do with a with a talent like Lamar Jackson? So for me, if you're talking about the money's the same, it's easily Lamar Jackson. And that is not a slight on Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley whatsoever, in my opinion. Yeah, then Thursday night football game last week um, that Ravens played, and he made a play where he rolled out to his right and then just ripped the ball like 65 yards down the field, hit the receiver in the hands, and he dropped it, or maybe the DB made a play on it. It was one of the most incredible throws I've seen this season by any quarterback, and he makes those all the time. And you could add, you, I mean, you just went over it, Nick. The stats are really good. You talked about the 18 touchdowns, I mean, or the 1,800 yards, what, 16 touchdowns, whatever it was. But he also is dealing with a worse situation. Than the Daniel, than the Giants are right. Like he doesn't. His receivers are actually worse than the Giants. I would take Darius Slayton over every single receiver that I watched play in that Ravens Bucks game. I would take Wando Robinson over every single receiver that I watched play in that game. Ronnie Stanley, their left tackle, has not really been good since he returned. We have Andrew Thomas, the best elite tackle in the NFL, or one of the top three. So I mean, like we we always a lot of fans always default to nothing is worse than what Daniel Jones has deal with. Well, he has the best left tackle in football and. One team like the Ravens has Demarcus Robinson running routes with Devin Duvernay and like whatever. Like they have some ease up on the shots on Devin Duvernay. All right. (laughs) Devin Duvernay sucks and he lost me my fantasy match. It was actually the Monday night game that I just (laughs) lost recently where Lamar made that throw because Devin Duvernay couldn't get any freaking points. And I'm still pissed about that. But the fact of the matter is Lamar Jackson is actually somehow has a worse situation. And I agree. Daniel Jones is one of the worst situations. I don't want to put the air quotes. I mean, he still has the best left tackle in the NFL. We have to at least consider great and great play calling and an offense that's just designing yards for him and really protecting him. But okay, I get it. The receivers suck, but so do Lamar. So you put Lamar on this team with an elite left tackle, maybe Saquon, or you lose Saquon Barkley in this scenario, but obviously upgrades around. And I think he can do really well with this coaching staff. So I think for us, it's it's pretty clear um, that it would be. Okay, Bearded Lumby asks, do you think the fact that Tate Crowder came into Georgia as a running back and only played linebacker for two years in college is the reason his vision and feel for the and feel for the gaps and running lanes are a little bit off? I think it absolutely could be. I mean, he is a yeah. little bit uh, newer to the linebacker position, doesn't have as much experience. That can easily be, especially in Georgia. They might not have utilized him. I didn't watch, I haven't watched Georgia tape as extensively as a. Uh, as some when in terms of when Tay Crowder was there and exactly what they do. I know they run a lot of mint type of defensive fronts, which is essentially just a lot of nickel type of sub packages down there. And Tay Crowder, I'm not 100% certain what his role was there, but I really feel like that could factor into it. Because again, man, there are plays when Tay Crowder shows like incredible instincts and he's really quick. He has a really quick trigger to come downhill and fill. But then there are other plays where he's just reading and he tries to undercut, you know, maybe he's trying to rely on his athletic ability and he got away with that in college. And then here in the NFL, you're not going to necessarily get away with that. And you're not doing your defense any favors. If you end up trying to undercut, you don't get home. You're going up against some really damn good athletes in the NFL. So you're not going to really chase a lot of guys down from the backside, especially when there are blockers in the area to pick you off. So I, I like Tay Crowder as a as somebody to be on the roster, but as we've said several times on this podcast, I don't think he's necessarily somebody somebody you want to be starting for you. And that's kind of been my position on Tay Crowder this entire time. And I think that's a really good point by whoever asked that question. Bearded Lumby, uh, long time listener. Lumbee. 
And I'll say this about Tick Rider. I'm really interested to see how they treat him coming out of the bye week after kind of last week or their last game against Seattle. They kind of moved him off the role he had had all season, and they moved Jalen Smith into the mic. And then Tay Crowder was off the field for some snaps, or it was Smith and McFadden. So I don't know what – I mean, maybe that Jacksonville was an indicator for – game was an indicator for them. I don't know. But I'll be interested to see if what they what they came up with after going to the bye week as far as what they're going to do with these linebackers. You know, What's the rotation going to look like? Who's going to play the mic? That's what I'm focused in on, especially now that McKinney's out. I mean, he played, guess how many snaps he played? He played 22, Dan. That is that is the lowest of 2022. That is the lowest of 2021. The last time he's played less than 30 snaps in a game was week one against Denver in 2021 when Blake wow. Martinez was there, still healthy. Because remember, Blake Martinez got hurt in week three. And then, right. Two, unfortunately, Tay Crowder had to play a lot of snaps in that game as well. And then we remember what J.D. McKissick did against him in the passing attack throughout that game. So this coaching staff might be onto something about Tay Crowder. But again, he's being replaced by Jalen Smith. So it's not like they're replacing him with this fantastic linebacker prospect. Jalen Smith has a lot of issues with vision and decisiveness in his own right. And like I've said, it looks like sometimes when he's out there, he drank like five monsters. He's so hoppity. You know, he's, he's just bouncing around all over the place sometimes. But I'm interested as well. I'm interested to see if we're going to see more Micah McFadden, if Landon Collins' role is going to expand a little bit into the box. I think Xavier McKinney's injury definitely hurts maybe that potential opportunity but this is why we're really excited to see exactly what goes down yeah exactly nick nailed this all right lyrical cynical asks before the season started i asked nick if he would extend uh um leo if he would send leonard williams now that we are midway through what's your guys' position on it considering the level dexter's playing at should we invest that much on the interior defensive line no i don't think that the Giants are going to extend him past the contract that they already kicked down the road. They already mm. kicked down some of Leonard Williams cap down the road to, to be able to afford their rookie draft class. And I think that's probably going to be the last extension that Leonard Williams earns here at the, as a New York giant. I think I hope Dexter Lawrence is going to be a New York giant for quite a while. Cause he's just growing into a fantastic young football player as of right now. But in terms of Leonard Williams, I think when his contract is up, he's going to be probably North of 30. I think don't quote me on that. I don't have the numbers in front of me. And I think the Giants might look to go in another direction. I also think the Giants are going to invest similar to what Brandon Bean did up in Buffalo in the trenches in these next coming drafts. They're going to look for long, strong guys like they did with Gregory Rousseau and Carlos Boogie Basham and players like that. So that, I think the Giants are going to start replenishing the trenches soon. Yeah, he'll be he's 28 years old now, Leonard Williams. Um, Dexter Lawrence, obviously considerably younger, though D lineman, interior defensive lineman can maintain you know, great play at a high level, like well into their thirties. We've seen this like Calais Campbell types, though he's an absolute freak of nature. So, I mean, it is what it is, but as far as extending Leo and pushing more cap down the road there, um, they just, it, it depends. If you guys think, if you're in the camp of, you want to resign Jones, you want to resign Barkley, then rule it out immediately because you're not going to be able to afford Saquon Jones. I'm sorry. Saquon Barkley, Daniel Jones, Dexter Lawrence, Leonard Williams, and then all the other resignings you have to make, including Andrew Thomas, Julian Love, things of that nature. And if you're going to invest as much as you're probably going to in, in Dexter Lawrence, and we'll get to that later because there's a question about his potential contract extension and what that ballpark numbers could look like. If you're going to invest that much in Dexter Lawrence, you can't really afford to have this $25 million cap hit on Leonard Williams as well. You can't. It just 
it's just not, it's, it's a very, I mean, it'd be interesting. I, I don't think there's any NFL team right now who has that blueprint. Uh, it's like old school, right? It's like nineties, two thousands NFL where like, I remember like the Jaguars back in their heyday when Tom Coughlin first went there, they had two sick defensive tackles in there. I'm forgetting their names now. It's been so long, but um, do you remember these guys by any chance? The two Jaguars defensive tackles it's not coming to my mind right now, but yeah. I will say, I will say this though, Dan, it also might depend somewhat on what Leonard Williams is willing to take now that he's been paid and how he is performing. I think that will be factored in, but I think like Julian Love might earn a contract here. You're going to start seeing some of these guys that were drafted by the prior regime earn contracts, Andrew Thomas, which is going to right. force some of those other guys who are going to get paid big money by other teams out the door. And I think Leonard Williams is one of those prime candidates as somebody who's getting paid a crap load of money right now. But I think there are still so many other things that have to play out before we get there. Yep. That's fair. Okay. Um, let's see. Green Machine asks, how did you guys come into this field of work? Okay. Uh, Dan, I know I've heard your story. Your story is really interesting. I just wanted to work covering football. I essentially ended up joining this thing called the Scouting Academy because I wanted to get into coaching and I wanted to get into scouting. And I met a man named Dan Hatman, who is the director of the Scouting Academy. And I networked through him earned a couple trips down to the Reese's Senior Bowl where I met Mark Schofield, who ran a site called Inside the Pylon. So I latched on Inside the Pylon, and we basically wrote about the X's and O's of the NFL, similar to what we do here on the Big Blue Banter podcast. I learned a lot through them. And Mark Schofield actually ended up tying me up with Mr. Dan Schneier over here, and I kind of got kicked off with that simultaneously. I latched on with Big Blue View. Ed Valentine needed a writer, so I started writing for him. And that was around the time I graduated college. I think it was like my last semester in college. So it was a couple of years ago. And I ended up just writing through that. It basically started where I was just like, I don't really know exactly what I want to do, but I want to do something in football. And it took a couple of years to kind of figure it out and carve out my way and network. And I was writing unpaid for, I don't know, maybe like three years or something like that until I finally got my first paid gig. So it took a little while, but I would say the, the juice was worth the squeeze. Yeah, that's cool. And I'm glad, obviously, we got connected through Mark. This show would never be, it was dead until, I mean, it was, it was alive. And then Nick Turchin left and it was dead. And I was like, I needed to find someone even like you, Nick. And then I found some, the best possible, you know, at least Thank in you. my mind, the best possible co-host for this show. Like, not only are you, you have, you had the, you have the Turchin level analysis down from the X's and O's, but you're also an actual fan. No, no shot, no shot at Turch. He knows this, but he was never really a diehard Giants fan. And I think having that fandom adds to the show personally you have to have it um as far as how did i get into this so i went to like when i was a kid man like i was i was obsessed with sports writing about sports i did all sorts of things my grade teachers were always like this this dude has to be a writer telling my parents that and then when i went to school i looked at a bunch of schools but my main decision for going to wisconsin wasn't like the journalism school which was pretty solid there it was mostly that I visited. It was an incredible weekend. I went in this like basically just before the summer. So the weather was great. I wanted the big sports. My dad went there and we we watched Wisconsin growing up. So those were the main reasons. But I went to the journalism school anyway. But at that time, it was in a really, um, you know, part of, I guess, the I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. At that time, everyone told you you can't 
go journalism. Like journalism is a dying breed. It was kind of just as so it was like 2007. It was kind of just as like the internet was taking off to what it's going to be. There was no Twitter. There's no social media to promote your work or anything like that. So like it was really like, what are you going to do? Go write for a newspaper. So I was convinced enough to not follow my passion. So I derailed a bit. And though I was in the journalism school, I chose the advertising route. So it's, there were two schools. There was one like broadcast print and then advertising. I went the advertising route, got my degree. Got offered a job right out of school in Chicago, said, hell no. I decided after those four years in Wisconsin, Nick, I was never living north of New Jersey for the rest, <laughs> north, north of New York, I should say. I lived in the city in Queens for a while, north of that area ever again. I would never do another Chicago or Wisconsin winter. You know, God bless you if you're listening and you're from that area, or you're living in the Midwest. I understand it's grit. I get it. And I get you guys get used to it, quote unquote. That's what you tell me. But I don't want to get used to that kind of weather. It's miserable. <laughs> it's a miserable. For me, it was miserable from a weather standpoint. So anyway, I went back to New Jersey, New York, went to the city, and I got a job working for a company that does video advertising. Worked there for a year. Hated my freaking life. I would wake up every day. I was commuting from New Jersey. I was living at home. I didn't have money. I was living at home, commuting from New Jersey to New York every single day on that bus, getting stuck in traffic waking up, looking at the mirror at like 6.30 a.m. being like, I don't think I can do this again. I don't think I can go back to the office again. So I'm doing that for like a year. And I said, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to start writing a blog. I want to get back into my passion about writing about football. So I start writing about football. Nothing really happens. Then I get laid off from that job, which was like a blessing in disguise. So I can start seriously, you know, I have more time to like put in, put work into this. So I'm just hanging out on Twitter one day, Nick. And for everybody listening, and this is people now know Twitter as what it is. But back in the day, dude, Twitter was like 250. It felt like just 250 people talking about football, right? There was <laughs> nobody on there. So Chris Wessling, who ended up going, uh, unfortunately, Chris Wessling passed of cancer. This is a, that part of this is sad, but he was a legend, legend at Roto World, OG. Then he moved on to NFL Network and he tweeted out something like, I can't believe it. The Roto like it was like big news in the NFL that Roto World missed at the time. And this is Roto World back in the heyday of Roto World, Nick, when Roto World was was everything for football and fantasy football news. Those blurbs were everything. You, there was no twi Twitter was very minimized at the time, so you needed to get your news still from uh, from Roto World. And so he's like, nobody's running this account. It's so poorly managed. So I literally just found his email, emailed him, and said, "I'll run your Twitter account, the Roto World Twitter account, for free. Just give me an opportunity." So I do that, and I start running the Twitter account for free. And then that gets me involved in like, uh, you know, chats and message rooms, whatever, with like Evan Silva and guys like that. Mike Clay at the time was a Roto World guy. Or no, Mike Clay was just early in pro football, folks. This is where Mike Clay went to ESPN. And so I'm doing a little bit of work, working the Twitter account, and in one of these mock drafts or something. And in the chat, I ask Mike Clay, hey, can I reach out to you? And Mike Clay's running Pro Football Focus Fantasy at the time. And I say, I want an opportunity to write. So he gives me an opportunity to write for Pro Football Folks Fantasy. I put out a lot of really good content at the time. I was doing an offensive line report, how it impacts fantasy, doing a bunch of interesting things there using like the Pro Football Focus grades, whatever. Anyway, then after that, I get a job with Fox Sports because I use that writing and I reach out to my old boss, Brian, at Fox Sports. And I say, all right, I want an opportunity here. Here's my writing. What do you think? And he loves it. So he gives me an opportunity. I run the NFC South. So I'm writing about the South, Nick, for like, two years at Fox sports. And that's where I got into the whole saints thing, because, you know, I'm writing about the saints. It's 2014. They're supposed to be 60 million over the cap. And then they <laughs> signed Jairus bird to the largest contract for a safety in history. I don't know what happened. They still haven't. It's they're finally going to pay the Piper this year. I know they're in for uh, some final bad years, but man, that was 2014. It's 2022. I don't get it. Where did this cap go? But anyway, so I'm writing about the saints. And then 
I move up and I start running the team there of eight writers. This is a long story. I need to cut this off at some point and I will, <laughs> uh, and I'll get to the good part soon. So anyway, then Fox sports behind our backs decides. And at this point I'm running a team. I'm like the go-to guy for this dude, Brian and Fox sports decides we're going all, we're getting rid of our entire digital writing. We're going all video. It was their biggest mistake since then they've admitted it since then they lost a lot of money. And so at once everyone got laid off. And so now I'm back on my feet. I have no I'm six months out of it. I'm not doing anything. And 24 seven sports picks me up. They want me to run the giants beat. And at that point, Nick, I start running the Giants beat. But at that point before that, I guess, I don't know how this started, but I was kind of just using Twitter to like put my Giants takes out there. And I built a bit of a following. I built it up to like 12,000. That's the number I remember. When it got to 12,000, I decided, I said, you know what? I want to do a Giants podcast. Let me see if I have enough people who like my shit right now that I can actually start this and get anyone to listen. And so I found Nick Turchin originally. We started the podcast. We started with like, uh, you know, only like a thousand listeners. It started with or like 10, 1100, whatever it was built it up. And, you know, that's basically my story from 24 seven sports. I moved over to CBS sports when CBS acquired 24 seven. Then I was on the NFL side. Now I moved over to the fantasy football side where I love it right now. Um, so yeah, that's basically my story. It just took a shot in the dark, emailed Chris Wessling said, I'll do this for free. And I think what it comes down to, as far as like your question goes, green machine, why are we in this industry? How do we get here? How do we have this opportunity now? For me, in my opinion, it's all about passion. If you have the passion for this and you're willing to spend the amount of time that you need to do this, that's the only way you have any opportunity because there's so many passionate people out there trying to do this kind of content. And if you don't have that passion or you're not even at the crazy level of passion that like Nick and I are, I mean, I just, this is what I do all day, every single day between this and CBS. It's just constant football, 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 football. And I don't ever get sick of it. I don't know. It's crazy, Nick. Yeah, same here. And also work ethic is a huge part of it. Like, I, I mean, I coached when I was in college too, which right. also helps with what we do here on the podcast. When I was also in college, I joined the radio club and I taught myself how to edit podcasts. I taught myself mm -hmm. podcasting software. I taught myself how to use a soundboard. And I was basically in the in the studio almost every day recording podcasts for a podcast that I used to do that like 20 people listen yeah. to. So yeah. we're just kind of like putting in the work through right. doing stuff like that. And then like all those things combined kind of get you to where you want to be, or at least somewhere where you want to be and adopt the student mindset and keep trying to learn everything that you can and just know that you don't know everything shit like that, you know, like yeah. little tips like that. I, I feel like uh, went a long tips. way when I was in college, at least. Yeah. Those are great tips. Thanks, man. Passion. The passion is key. You have to have the passion for this. It's the only thing that, I mean, you got to have good takes too. Trust me. I think if you know, there's a lot of people out there with bad takes and they don't go that far. You got to have good takes, but most importantly, you got to put in the time. You got to have insane, insatiable passion for us. And it's crazy because I spend like 80 hours a week doing between these two jobs, between this podcast and my main job, just football, right? Football or fantasy football. I watch a shit ton of film that doesn't even count. I'm not even counting this in the hours. And I never get sick of it. I don't know how I just, I must be sick. I never get sick of it. So it's crazy. Anyway. I absolutely, I absolutely love it. Cannot be satiated. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You may start noticing there are strange tall boys of beer in the bottled water section of your local stores. You might also think, hey, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because it's not beer. It's actually mountain spring water from the Alps, and it's called liquid death. Why is the water called liquid death, you might ask? Well, because it will brutally murder your thirst. And their infinitely recyclable tall boy cans are helping to bring death to plastic bottles. They also donate 10% of their profits from every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. Look, I've tried liquid death. It's pretty good water. You should go out there and give it a good old chug. People will think you're drinking a beer, but really, you're just hydrating yourself because you're parched. So please, go get Liquid Death at your local Whole Foods Market, Target, and Stop and Shop stores, or find a Liquid Death retailer near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com slash bigblue. Please use that promo code. That's liquiddeath.com slash bigblue. Zach Jacobs asks, what are your record predictions for the rest of the season? Hmm. Also, Chris Myrick seems to be at least a decent route runner slash blocker. Is he good enough to back up Bellinger long-term? Besides linebacker and wide receiver, would tight end be the third biggest need for this offense? So let's tackle the first part of that. Two great questions, by the way. So what are your record predictions for the rest of the season? Look, this this schedule isn't really that difficult outside of the NFC East opponents with the Philadelphia Eagles, the Dallas Cowboys, and then Washington. I mean, you can lose those games, but at the same time, I feel like the Giants are better coached than the Washington Commanders. And then the other games left, I'm just doing this off the top of my head. You have the Vikings on Christmas Eve, you have the Colts, and then you have Detroit and the Texans. Am I missing anybody? Um, That is it. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the Giants could win at least five, six of those games. I mean, if things break the right way for them. But I, I, I'm going to have to pull up the schedule to really do this, I think. Yeah. I'm going to do that right now. I'll do mine as you pull it up. So I'm going to start with Texans, Giants. Look, Giants are coming into this game a little banged up in the sense that the McKinney loss is going to be bigger than we think. They still don't have Ojolari back. They still don't have Neil back. But I think they're going to win this game against the Texans. So I'm going to go to 7-2. and two. Lions without McKinney. Gets a little trickier. I'm on Ross. St. Brown for them is getting back into form. I still think the Giants are going to win that game. So I'm going to go eight and two. Cowboys Thanksgiving. These injuries are screwing me over. I feel bad. You know, I feel like it's going to hold them back a little. I'm going to go to eight and three. Commanders at Giants. I'm going to go to nine and three. Eagles at Giants. I'm going to go to nine and four. I think the Eagles will win that. I think the Giants are going to win against the Commanders in in, uh, Washington after that. So 10 and four. I think they'll lose to Minnesota on Christmas Eve. It's such a hard place to play, especially when that team is good. I went to a Giants-Minnesota game a few years ago when McAdoo was coach, and that was the loudest stadium I had ever been at. And I just felt like, I think of the way it's designed and the way those fans get up for it, it's a tough stadium to play at. So that brings me to 9-5, and I think. Or no, 10-5. and Then the Colts at Giants, I'm going to give that a win, 11-5. and and so now you get to this Eagles game at 11 and five. Um, 
which is crazy to even think about that. I'm saying 11 and five, but the, there's a possibility that the Eagles aren't playing for anything in this game. Now that possibility is lesser than it has ever been because the NFL changed the format of the playoffs. And now there's not two buys when there used to be two buys, the one and in two seed, you would see more of the resting of the players in that game and, and a meaningless game. But now that there's only that one, one seed and, and it means so much because the bye week, I think the Eagles will probably have to play for something in that game. Though, if they beat the Cowboys again, I don't know if they will. That's the thing because ah, it's like who else in the NFC? Could, oh, the Vikings. The Vikings could, could beat because they don't have many losses. Okay, so maybe they will have to play for something. So I'll go eleven and six final record. Yeah, I have it at ten and seven. Okay, because I, I mean I think the Giants should win these next two weeks. They could lose one of them in Houston. They could, yeah. and then it's going to put them behind the eight ball. I think the Eagles could sweep the Giants. Now the Giants could beat. I mean the Giants beat the Eagles last season with that same coaching staff in place, and you know that this coaching staff is much better coached than the other one. I think Dallas is going to be tough in Dallas on Thanksgiving. I kind of want to switch to 11 and six. I'm I'm leaning towards switching to 11 and six and I might stick with that, but the giants have to take care of business. These next two. Yes, for sure. Good question. And the second part of that question uh, was Chris Myrick. So also Chris Myrick seems to be at least a decent route runner slash blocker. Is he good enough to back up Bellinger long-term? I think the giants will more than likely add another tight end, whether that be a veteran or a rookie in the draft, especially if they want to keep using 12, 13 personnel, which I'm not 100% certain if they do when they get their ideal personnel in the building. I like Chris Myrick. I think he has a place on this roster, but I would not pencil him in to to be the number two tight end behind Daniel Bellinger long-term. I think you can have him be your number three, fight out for that spot, but not a number two in in my opinion, even though I do appreciate him as a blocker. Yeah, it's interesting because like, you think of him as a blocker and as a receiver. I don't really, I haven't seen at least in my mind, Nick, on film. Like, look, I know Bellinger's the better prospect. He has, you know, you could just look at where he was scouted, where he was drafted, the, the athletic traits, the uh, the athleticism testing. But I don't know if I've seen too much more from Bellinger than Myrick as a blocker or receiver, to be honest. He's been better in both regards. He's also had more opportunities. Uh, so I, uh, it's interesting with Myrick and these types of players. I don't know that it'll have a long-term fit just because there are, you can find these types of guys pretty, I don't want to say easily, but you can find players like Chris Myrick. Bellinger, the hope is as the passing game evolves, he can then take that step forward as a, as a pass receiver, not just as a blocker. Um, yeah, I would say Bellinger is a better athlete. And he's a Myrick. much better athlete, yeah. And and I and I do think there is a little bit of a difference between Bellinger and Myrick as, as a, a blocker. blocker. I think, yeah. And you're also sure. talking about Bellinger being a rookie. So you would imagine, like we always say, uh, development isn't always linear, but typically with these tight end prospects, when they start hot like this and they're good as a blocker, it's not like their blocking ability is going to diminish. They're going to grow into their bodies more more than likely they're going to learn the technique and they're more than likely going to at least stay the same or progress a little bit as a blocker. And I think there's so much room for growth for Daniel Bellinger as a pass catcher. Whereas Myrick, I don't know how high his ceiling is quite yet as a pass catcher. That's kind of where I'm at with, That's with, fair. with the Bellinger My- Myrick comparison, but I do like Chris Myrick and he was somebody we didn't expect to make the team. We were talking about Ricky Seals Jones and Jordan Aikens and all these types of players. And I've been pleased with what he's been able to show through the first eight games. Yeah, they ended up opting with the blocking type over them, and I think it paid off because maybe they didn't go into the offseason expecting it when they signed guys like Ricky Seals-Jones and Jordan Higgins, but this is a blocking team. This is a run-first team. This is a 12 personnel, heavier personnel, 
you know, smoke and mirrors offense, at least right now. Now, can that be sustainable? We'll find out in the second half of the season. And if it's not, then we have to find out if they can operate a drop back pass game on a consistent basis. All those also, remain. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I apologize. He also no. seems smart. Like he's not running advanced routes or anything like that, but like you see how he blocks, how he adjusts and on the routes that he does run and, and things like that. He seems like he has a good head on his shoulders. He's also six foot five, 260 pounds. Like, I don't think I realized that he was that big. He's got a solid frame. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he does seem like a savvy route runner. I feel like some of the routes he's run, he's done a good job of finding the space and getting open uh, for the Giants. So yeah, there could be a long-term future. I don't want to rule that one out. He's an interesting prospect for sure on this team. Okay. Then the third, the third part of Zach's oh, yeah, question. Yeah. Yeah. Besides linebacker and wide receiver, would tight end be the third oh. biggest need in the off season? And I think no. this is where it gets interesting because this offseason we don't know where our quarterback is going to be. We don't know where our running back is going to be. And we also don't really know what's going on with the cornerback position. We know a is going to be there. Fabian Moreau. I mean, he's playing his way into another contract. Aaron Robinson. He's more than likely going to miss this entire season. What do you expect from him in year three after missing his entire second year? I still think like you could use some more talent in the secondary, specifically at cornerback. And I say that while also acknowledging that Aaron Robinson and Cordell Flott are going to add something. But Darnay Holmes will be, what, his last year of his contract at that point? I don't know if I'm willing to say that cornerback is definitely the third biggest need. I think tight end could be in that conversation. Is there something I'm missing, Dan? Well, it just depends. Like, I think a lot of it depends on what you said earlier. Like, is this really the vision that Dable and Kafka and Shane want? Like, a tight end heavy team? Or you have two guys on the field because if not, then Bellinger is kind of your dude, right? If you want to be a more, a more, um, you know, drop back pass heavy offense, or you can run a lot of 11 personnel and then you could just have Bellinger on the field and then you don't really need to invest this heavily in the position. In position. I think ultimately that is what they want to do. So I would personally put over it corner, center, um, and and even honestly guard because I don't really see too much of a future with Golinski. Azuto to me. Whenever you take a guard like this, it's like maybe he hits, and I love the upside with Zudu, but I could totally see a route where we're just like two years from now, Zudu is not the starter, and he's like maybe some guy that's like, are we going to cut him? Is he going to is he going to make the roster his depth? And that's nothing against Zudu. It's just really hard to be an NFL offensive lineman in transition, and the traits are there, so I'm still very high on him right now. I think we're on the same page, Dan. I want the Giants if the value is there to just invest in the offensive line and get your best yeah. five out there. Like right now, this is like the foundation level of what I hope this offensive line will be. And from here, it will only go upward. Like you have your two tackles right there. Evan Neal hopefully will only get better at this point. That's right. what the hope is. But we hope that the Giants will find upgrades over Glowinski, Feliciano, and whoever they're trotting out at left guard. If it is a Zudu long-term, then a Zudu will be the guy who will hopefully grow into a true starting that you, starter that you can rely on. That's the hope right now for this offensive line. So if you need to keep you know throwing darts at the dartboard in order to do that, I am 100% on board for that type of approach. What do you think of it's not going to happen this year. And I think it's a little maybe galaxy brained, but what do you think of the idea of a Zudu potentially at center? Yeah. He was taking snaps there if I'm not mistaken during training camp. Right. I think. Yeah. He had a few. Yeah. yeah I think he had a few Just from snaps. A skill set standpoint. What are your thoughts on it? So I don't know where he's at from a mental standpoint from, from everything I've heard. He has a, you know, he's very, very intelligent kid. So could he adopt that? Possibly. I mean, you want to talk about his athletic ability. Yeah. yeah. I love it. But one of the things that we we talk about on film is the anchor. He's getting pushed back right. a lot. And at center, that's 
that little problematic. Yeah. And also when you got to snap the football and then lift your head up, find somebody, shoot your hands inside, like that, that's, I think a more difficult thing to do than maybe like fans give credit for, because mm-hmm. there's a whole aspect to it, especially when you're in shotgun, you have to have an accurate snap in order to do that. And then you have to worry about the blocking. So I think we got to take it one step at a time with Josh Azudu. And that would be cool though, just from an athletic ability standpoint, because one of the first things I didn't really know much about Josh Azudu when the New York giants drafted him. So I went to his tape and I was like, Oh wow, this kid can move. I'm like, people were like, Oh, that's a crappy pick. Cause he wasn't like high on a lot of draft boards, yeah. but I'm like, this kid's got some feet, bro, but he can scoot. So you get that guy out in space. That's why I really hope he can develop into the starter here because I think there's just so much potential and upside with the, the traits that he has and not even just the feet, Dan, but his freaking hands, man. If yes. he gets his hands inside, they're vice grips, bro. He doesn't let you go. So like, I, I really hope he can put everything together because I just think the ceiling is, is really high for Josh Azudu. Yeah, he's one of their highest floor, highest, uh, highest floor, highest ceiling players on the roster right now. And there's stress on the ceiling because that's what we should be looking at anyway, the ceiling. I just brought that idea up because I just think about that athleticism as a center in space and what, you know, the Eagles have been able to make do such a good job of with like a Kelsey type athlete at that position. And it's just super intriguing to me. I do agree properly though. I mean, he'll most likely be a guard for them. I just wanted to throw that idea out there as a possibility. Um, All right. Dane Metcalf asks, gentlemen, given the rash of entries on the defensive side of the ball and the return of some key injured players on offense, is it possible that we see the offense defense swap places for the second half of the season? Meaning the offense is more of the dominant unit and the defense is just good enough to get by. I think it's possible. Yeah. I mean, we hope that the offense can take steps in the right direction and with the defense, I think the Xavier McKinney loss is going to be like you said a little bit earlier. I think it's going to be damning. I think it's going to really suck. And even with Xavier McKinney, we've seen this defense be highly suspect and highly questionable. So I think it's, something that could unfortunately happen where this defense regresses. Is that what I'm banking on as of right now against the Houston Texans? No, not necessarily. I think the Detroit Lions could be a little bit more of a problem in terms of their offense. Their defense is just absolutely horrendous. But for me, I'm hoping that the offense progresses and the defense kind of stays pat. That's what I'm hoping. And I think that's the way kind of look at it. I think hopefully they can generate a little bit more pressure from their edge rushers and Kayvon Thibodeau can finish some a little bit more on his sack since he only has the one sack right now. And I really hope they can turn the freaking football over. I mean, they've been good with the fumbles, but what do they have? One interception on the year? Like, I hope that can, like, you know, turn around for for this team. I don't know if it's going to happen this week when Damian Pierce is carrying the ball like 30 freaking times every game. But I, I think, unfortunately, it, it's something that could realistically happen. You know, it's an interesting question, Dane. I, I might say that the defense hasn't really even been better than the offense in the first half of the season. So I'll start by saying this DVOA football outsiders. You know, I'm not a huge fan of pro football focuses grading scale, but I like some of their advanced metrics. As far as football outsiders goes, I have a lot of respect for their DVOA. Their DVOA has been really predictive over time and done a really good job of showing who's playing well and who's not. And according to DVOA, the giants were 28th in defensive DVOA overall in the first half. They were 14th in offensive vote in DVOA. Are we sure that the defense was better than the offense in the first half of the season? Or was the defense just one opportunistic, a key in turnovers and key spots stops in the red zone and key spots. B was the offense holding the ball so long and taking all these long drives that it put the defense in advantageous spots. Those are the questions that I'm asking when I see numbers like 28th in DVOA on the defense side of the ball and 14th on the offensive side of the ball. And we knew going into the season that we at least thought the defense was 
lacking in talent compared to the offense. That was always the expectation. We were worried about corner two. We were honestly worried about, we didn't know what we were going to get from these edges. They were names, but we didn't know. We obviously, the linebackers are its own issue too. Um, and then now without McKinney, that could kind of put that into hyperdrive. So I don't know. I think there's a chance that the offense could we could flip from a perception standpoint, but I would maybe make the case that the offense wasn't too much worse than the defense in the first half. I love all of those takes that you just said, and some of them you just like took right out of my brain, and I was yeah. like, damn, great job, Dan, but nice. the efficiency, because this defense in high leverage situations, it seems like this defense has stepped up, right. and they're just hitting grand slam after grand slam, but there are times when they're striking out at the same time. You know, like when you force all the fumbles on the goal line, when when Travis Etienne is about to go into the end zone, when you when you come up with big third down stops in high leverage situations, that's all well and good. That's great. But go back to the Jacksonville game. It's like, bro, I don't know what, you know, those guys were looking at the Jacksonville Jags ball carriers, but like there were so many just issues with the the run defense. And now you remove Xavier McKinney, one of your better run defenders and just one of your better overall leaders on the defense that I, I just, I gives me, it gives me a little bit of pause to think that it could be an issue, but I love the points that you made in terms of football outsiders DVOA and how it might be a little bit misleading because when you have 15 play 14 play 13 play drives at the New York giants offense consistently did almost every single week in the second half, it's going to take a big burden off of your defense. So I think that was an excellent point, bro. Yeah, it already has. And we'll see what happens there. I'm, I'm definitely a little worried about it from the overall standpoint, Nick, because and you know, I don't want to say the giants were lucky in the first half. I don't think that's true. And I know some people have, have floated that out there, but I think they've had some fortunate things that things have gone their way in some regard. When you see a number that that's alarming, like, wow, we're 28th in DVOA on defense yet. We don't really give up points. What is that telling us? And, and we'll see because, you know, the offense to me is still kind of a question mark as far as will they take that jump in the second half? That that remains to be determined. The defense to me scares me because I feel like they are going to regress a little bit, but we'll see. And it's also just crazy too, Dan. Like, what did we talk about throughout the the Jason Garrett era. They did no explosive plays. They have no explosive plays. Like right now, we think very highly of Brian Dayball and Mike Kafka, and we should for all of the adjustments that they make. But the one thing that they're not doing is creating explosive plays. Like I've said this on, on this podcast before, they have 17 explosive plays through eight games, right? Like that's not that great. This is, we I can't right believe now. that they have, if, if you had told anyone they have fewer explosive plays on offense than the Steelers, that's what would shock you because that, you and know, that's man. widely, yeah, go ahead. Now, Steelers and the Rams, they, they're they they're just ahead of the Giants, tied at 31-30 with 21 explosive plays. And nobody would associate the Giants' offense as being less explosive right. potent as those two offenses who everybody gen generally feels are just horrendous, right? Because they kind of are. Now, the New York Giants are like... kind of goes back to what you just referred to with the last, the last thing that you just talked about, man. Like, they're sustaining drives, you know, they're kind of cutting you up with these six yard gains, these five yeah. yard gains, you know, these nine yard gains, but they're not getting those big chunk 20 yard gains. And I just, I just hope that that can be flipped, man. We saw it in week one with Sterling Shepard. Let's hope that, uh, let's hope that the uh, giants can figure out a way to push the ball downfield. And it's so funny to me, Nick, from like a philosophical standpoint, because we just went through a head, uh, not a head coach an offense coordinator and Jason Garrett, who his philosophy was to get, 10 yards and three plays and to keep moving the chains and to, to keep the clock running, things of that nature. And I know that Dable and Kafka's philosophy is not that everything they've done in their careers has proven. That's not their philosophy. They understand that's not a good way to go about it. And yet out of necessity, 
with what they have to work with this offseason. They've been forced to try to create an offense like that. And yet, despite the fact that they're only doing it out of necessity and Garrett was doing it out of pure belief in the philosophy and sorry, the philosophical standpoint uh, perspective of it, Dable and Kafka have been able to make it work and they've been efficient with it. And the opposite was true for Garrett. And it's just so interesting to me that, you know, they had the exact <laughs> We get into with the exact same end result, right? We're still, you know, we're going for these longer drives. We're trying to create first downs, but it's just such a different way of going about it. A lot of what they've done in the first half has been, like you said, the play action boot game, get Daniel Jones on the run by design. But also a lot of it was tell Jones to take that B gap and run with it. A lot of our first downs are just Jones pulling it, pulling the trigger and running with it. I think he has like the 17th most or 31st most rushing yards in the entire NFL I think it was or 27th, one of those two, and the third most among quarterbacks. So they really have made it clear, like we're taking yards via the run game. And that's helps you move the sticks. That helps you get these first downs. And they and even the passing game that what they've been able to create has been, you know, like you said, off the boot action or just like different clear out routes and different uh, flood, you know, flooding different area zones and areas of the field that different ways to create small amounts of yards versus like Garrett's whole spacing sticks. And it just, it's so ironic to me that that was what he wanted to do Garrett and he was never able to accomplish it. And now just by pure necessity, Dable and Kafka are doing it this way and they're actually doing it right. They're exploring all options. Dable and Kafka, like, like they're the king of adjustments, like just using Daniel Jones's legs and, and just being like, Hey, if it's there, take it like that little adjustment has sustained so many of these drives. And we didn't necessarily see that too often under Jason Garrett. Now we just hope that some of the explosive play opportunities that have been dialed up by Mike Kafka can now be executed upon. And that's kind of the next step. And hopefully we can see that against Houston. David Goodman asks, so on the pod, you mentioned $30 million per year for Jones. Would you really do this? Wouldn't the wiser course be to start the rookie quarterback contract clock again, since while Jones is decent, he isn't someone who elevates the team on his own? Oh, man, David, you trapped us. This is a trap question. We're going to get killed for this one. It's Uh, a trap. (laughs) It's a trap. (laughs) Oh, man, David, David, David. Um, Look, let's. That's the best way to answer this question. Nick and I are definitely believers in the rookie contract, uh, the clock. Okay. We, we believe in that for sure. We, we understand that if you're going to pay Daniel Jones, $30 million a year versus the upside of hitting on a rookie quarterback and having to pay him 8 million or 9 million against the cap, there's an obvious difference. But the problem with that idea, David is who is the rookie you're going to be able to start this contract clock on, right? Because the Giants have won so many games at this point, they're not going to have an opportunity to draft anyone that can play next year. So then what do you do? You play Tyrod Taylor, right? So I guess the question for for us or for you would come down to, does Daniel Jones make enough of a difference on his own over a Tyrod Taylor? Personally, I think that question cannot be answered because Tyrod Taylor has not had an extended period to play and try out in this offense. A lot of Giants fans feel that question can be answered already and that Daniel Jones is a much better quarterback than Tyrod Taylor. and It'll give them a much better chance to win than Tyrod Taylor. Now, I don't truly understand how they're so certain of that because Tyrod never got a full opportunity, never got any opportunity to run this offense, except for, you know, the few plays earlier this season where he had a drive or two, which doesn't, you know, he didn't game plan for that week. He didn't practice with the ones that week. He hasn't practiced with the ones at all. So that's not really a fair barometer. But if you do believe that Jones gives them the best chance by far, then that's where it gets tricky because then, you know, you're thinking, okay, does he elevate the team? Does he do a lot of this on his own or are they scheming 
ways to make him effective by having him run more often with all the short passes, with the boot action, things of that nature to kind of limit his turnovers and, you know, generate some kind of offense, which they've generated a decent amount. Like I said, they're, they're middle of the pack in DVOA. They've generated offenses here. A lot has been the running but they, with, jo- with Jones, but they've generated offense. And so that's the one factor from that standpoint. I'll just wrap it up by saying that I, I don't have a good answer for this, I would say, but I'll wrap it up by saying this. We have to take a step back always with these questions and think about like the personal feel to it and the, and the culture and everything they're building. Like if you have Daniel Jones and he leads you to a playoff berth and you get the wild card, right? And then you say, nah, we're done with him. And you, and you move on. What is that telling the locker room? Also, you know, if you bring him back, the flip side of that, you can, you can at least sell to your team and maybe it works out. Maybe it doesn't, but you can at least sell to your team. We're building something. We believe this is a guy who can get better as he has more time in the system. Is that, is that going to happen? I can't predict that. They can't predict that, but at least they can say, you know, they can build that momentum and that culture of, okay, we have this guy back. He now has another year in the system. He has another year building rapport. So that's another thing you lose. If you, if you remove Daniel Jones from this offense, you have to restart the rapport with whoever the next quarterback is. And these receivers, even though we know there'll be turnover at receiver, whatever, you still have to rebuild rapport with Bellinger with the offensive line, uh, you know, knowing the system, things like that. We're already seeing examples this year of Daniel Jones making good pre-snap audibles and po- and getting changing the protection, shifting protections, you know, on the offensive line, shifting blocking assignments in the run game. And that all has to restart then too. So you kind of just have to restart everything if you move on from Jones. And so I don't know ultimately if it makes sense to, to restart, go with Tyrod Taylor, maybe draft a quarterback or wait till 2024 to draft a quarterback. Uh, it just seems like it's a, it's a tricky question all around. It's not something I'm even fully ready to answer. I personally, I'm Joe Shane in this. Okay, David and Nick, I'm Joe Shane. Then they pressed Joe Shane on it this week. Zach Gelb did. He said, they're like, oh, Zach Gelb said a really pointed question. I don't know if you heard this, Nick, where he was like, hasn't Jones showed enough that he's definitely your guy? Because uh, he's talking about he's done all this and this. Gelb was kind of like opinionating on it. And Shane's like, nope, I want my nine games, right? I want nine more yeah. games to value it. I want my full 17 game sample size. And so I kind of feel the same way, honestly. For me, it comes down to what are the other options? Like, look, if the Giants had the first overall pick and they could get some of these top quarterbacks, then I would be like, yeah, if that's your guy, you make that selection. But the Giants are more than likely going to be a playoff team. Like, I'm not about drafting somebody like the Pittsburgh Steelers just drafted Kenny Pickett, where you're looking to replace him anyway. I think the Giants' best course of action could be to give Daniel Jones somewhat, I don't know if thirty million, if it's going to cost $30 million. I think it would be less. It, it really depends. I'm not really 100% certain on, on the economics of it. But I think a lot of the things that Dan brought up from the culture standpoint make a lot of sense. You bring him back, you build this roster out, you make this a more complete roster, and then you can strike on the quarterback that you're in love with. I'm not 100% certain if they're in love right now, but this roster has holes. If you could just spend a one year when you're going to have a lot of salary cap, depending on what you do with uh, Saquon Barkley and all these other question marks that we're not really certain of yet, you're going to have salary cap to spend. You could bring Daniel Jones back and then... You just made the playoffs. Say that the Giants do end up making the playoffs. Whatever happens, happens. Now you can compete for another year. All these guys that are going to be on the roster have another year under their belt. You're going to have another rookie class with Joe Shane's stamp of approval on it, with Brian Dable's stamp of approval on it. It'll be a more well-rounded roster, and then you can go and make your push for the quarterbacks that you want. If I've said this before. If you love a quarterback in this draft class, go and get him. But if you don't, I think Daniel Jones is a perfect option to bring back on a, on a somewhat smaller type of not long-term deal to compete next year. I also think that Daniel Jones offers more than Tyrod Taylor, 
I also don't know if Tyrod Taylor can stay healthy because he hasn't really done so in quite a while. I do have some concerns about that. But if Daniel Jones is asking for too much, which I'm not certain if he will, because I don't think there's going to be a lot of teams out there who are willing to give him a starting job like he may earn in New York if the Giants don't go and get a rookie, uh, a rookie quarterback, then I think you can go with the Tyrod Taylor option. I think that's the fallback option. But I'm not really opposed to giving Daniel Jones a one-year prove it or a two year, the giants can get out of it in one year type of deal. I don't think he's in the long-term solution here, David, but I'm not about drafting somebody at 20 who I don't think is going just because he's a rookie, just to be on the rookie contract. You know, I'm not about that unless yeah. they're certain he's the guy. I'm not sure if Pittsburgh was certain that Kenny Pickett was the guy, but he's the hometown kid. He went to Pitt and they brought him in and we'll see how that works out. It could and might not, you know, it, whatever. But I just want them to be sure of the quarterback of the future. And if Daniel Jones has to get a contract for one year from here on out, just for that one season, I, I'm I'm okay with that. If it's around, you know, 25 to 28 million or whatever. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me because I, I, I want to make sure I frame this right. When I was saying the option would be, you know, we don't know, or, or the, the thought process would be, we don't know what Tyrod Taylor can be in this offense. If he had the starting job, you have to take it into the context of, this is David saying, you know, we would be offering some kind of deal with 30 million against the cap per year, or 33 million against the cap per year. We know already Tyrod Taylor is signed for only 9 million against the cap or whatever. It yeah. Is. So you have to understand what I'm saying that it's Daniel Jones, 33 million or Tyrod Taylor at nine. And then you can sign someone and you can resign another player on your team, or you could have a little bit more cap health moving forward. So you can kind of get out of contracts. You need to get out of at another point. And that's so where it gets really interesting. They're not too, the same right? price. Yeah. It's not the same price. And I think that's where like, cause I think Daniel Jones is a better option than Tyrod Taylor. For sure. I don't, know if, I don't know if I think Daniel Jones is a better option than Tyrod Taylor, that big of a discrepancy of money. That's so the question. I, I think that's where it gets really interesting. But then when you're talking about, I think the best point that you brought up is the human element of it. This guy just led us to the playoffs. And let's be honest here. Sterling Shepard showing up to Giants practice with a Daniel Jones shirt. Like they love freaking Daniel Jones in that building. Ownership loves Daniel Jones. I, I think it's hard to not like Daniel Jones. He's a very, very likable dude, right? So I, I honestly think like if the Giants made the playoffs and they're just like, all right, you know, you wanted 25 mil, screw you, you're gone. And they don't go and draft their guy and they just bring in Tyrod Taylor. I don't know if that's going to sit all that well, even though they also love Tyrod Taylor. I, I'm, I'm not certain that it won't sit well, but I think it at least is a question that we should ask. Yeah, it is. And I think the whole Jones contract is interesting to me because, okay, if Saquon Barkley hit the market, I am sure that some team would make the decision to, to sign him. They could, or if let's say everybody had to hit the market before, because I think if they do decide to bring back both those guys, they are going to take up a lot of their cap alone. So we, we will be ruling out free agency because we already got to re-sign Andrew Thomas as well. Julian Love, Dexter Lawrence. So there is, there will be no more. The cap health goes away if they sign Jones and Barkley. That's, this is the core. The, the team they have now, plus whoever they draft moving forward, basically. And minor free agency here and there. But I think with Barkley, if there was ever a bidding war for him, someone would actually come in. And they would pop the price up. And the Giants would have to pay more. They'd go back and forth. Because it just takes one team. And he still is such a freak X factor. And they he has, in a lot of ways, been the reason the Giants are 6-2. and two. In, in, in some some ways. I think mostly it's the coaching. If I gave one... If I had to say one thing overall, it's the coaching, but Barkley might be the two of that might be. And I think he probably even you could say he could be, so there would be a bidding war, but this idea that like Jones is going to get into, there's some bidding war for Jones or there's some interested teams. I'm just not sold 
I know as fans, we let, we had it. We had a nice four game stretch where he kind of was, like I said, that command pitcher, he was doing what was asked. He wasn't turning the ball over. He made a few really big plays with his legs. He converted a few third and longs, a few really nice third and longs. But if you look at the overall thing, there's a four year sample size of play that other GMs are looking at with Daniel Jones, including this year where he only has five touchdown passes in eight games and he doesn't really move the ball at all through the air. And there's reasons why, but I'm not so sure other GMs, other teams are like, you know what? If he just had the Giants had such a bad receiver core, if he just had this, if he... no, they're probably like, I want to reset the scale at QB and take a chance at somebody else for 8 million against the cap. Why am I going to get into a bidding war with the Giants and give Jones 30 million a year against my cap when I don't know anything about Jones? He said four years on another team, uh, three were Three were not good statistically. The fourth was, I guess, okay statistically, if you want to call this okay. Stats aren't everything, but at the same time, they're not generating anything through the air, and they're not really asking him to do anything. So why am I giving him 30 million a year? So that's the whole thing that always confuses me. But, like, I don't know how you deal with that from the giant standpoint as a negotiation <laughs> process. Like, I don't know how you say to him, like, dude, you're kind of like a $20 million quarterback at best. Like, let's be honest about it. Can you be more sure? We'll give you incentives. Fine. You want incentives for a certain amount of pat touchdown passes, explosive plays, win, whatever it may be fine. But this idea that they need to get into a bidding war with over Joe, or they need to set up market. Like we'll give you 35, 36, whatever it is. I just don't know if you let him, if you let him test the market, I think he would come back and be like, all right, I'll take your offer with Barkley. If you let Barkley test the market, if you really like Barkley, he could be gone. Someone's going to offer him that contract he wants. So that's the other thing with that situation that stands out to me. You couldn't have put it better, to be honest. There is a market. And we've said that before on this podcast. And Daniel Jones, I just don't think there's going to be another team who's willing to give Daniel Jones as much money as the Giants might be right. willing to give him on a one-year or two-year get-out-of-it-after-one-year type of deal. And I think that's the reality of the situation. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. And we'll also see how Daniel Jones plays in these final nine games. Yep. Okay, uh, Frank the Tank asks, does liquid death actually murder your thirst or what, Nick? So I don't know if the ad reads are going right now. They're probably going to go before this. But yes, it actually brutally murders your thirst. And they also have these recyclable type of things that murder the issues that are going on in the climate. I mean, they really stress that in those ad reads. So if you want to go out to your local Wawa or whatever the hell you can get your liquid death, listen back to the ads. They're all in there. You can find out where you can get your liquid death. And if you're parched, if you're thirsty, your thirst and your parchedness will be absolutely decapitated, murdered, severed, dead. <laughs> All right. I like it. Liquid death. Go out, buy yourself some, drink some. All right. Sound Queen says, what's the best pizzeria in New York and why is it John's on Ble of Bleecker? Okay. We'll get into that in a second. Right, let's start with there. Nick, you, I assume you haven't had any of the good New York pizza places, right? No, nah, I have not. Sadly. It's, it's so sad. It's beyond belief. Um, <laughs> but I won't even get too much into that. I'm just going to turn to you here, Sal. And yeah, John's on Bleecker's up there for me. Um, out of the Manhattan places, I think John's on Bleecker was my favorite of all the Manhattan places. I'm thinking through my head, John's on Bleecker is probably my one, one in Manhattan. Now I will say this classic, um, wow. I'm forgetting the classic Joe's pizza. I think it's Joe's the one, uh, by union square. And there's a bunch of them. There's like three of them. That classic slice is actually, I'm a huge fan. Like John's on Bleecker was better, but I'm a huge fan. But as far as if you expand to all of New York and your question was New York, I'm taking DeFaro's over that. I'm taking Lucali over that to Brooklyn spots. I even like the industry. I went there with shout out Brett Childs. He took me there. It's uh the action Bronson spot. He put it on the map. I even like that better than John's on Bleecker. To me, it's again, okay, I'm a big thin crust. I love the coal thin crust, the crisp. 
and John's on Bleaker has that too, but th those Tafara, Lucali in the industry places just really take that to the next level. So I would put those three. Defara would be the number one for me. John's on Bleaker's by the comedy seller in New York. And also it, if I'm not mistaken, is mentioned in one of those Big Daddy. It was. I think that's where the woman oh, really? asked him, "Oh, let's go to John's on Bleaker." She said, and I, I don't know why I remember that. John's but. of Bleaker, but same, same, same. Oh, really? See, I, I don't even know. I, I have to try good New York pizza. I mean, you we've really went to Star do. What do you? I, do? We went to Star Tavern. I, I thought that was pretty solid. A little Star Tavern's good. It's great. It's great New Jersey slice. It's not as good as the New York style. So is New York better than New Jersey? Yes, New York has better pizza than New Jersey. Yeah, I, I would hate to admit that, but I yeah, we'll. Next time I go to the city, I and I want to you and I, we have to go and get a slice of pizza. And I'll ask you this real quick. We definitely do, Nick. And Sal, I don't know what part of Queens you're in, but the part that I used to live in, right by um Dittmar's and 31st in Astoria. Have you ever been to like I think it's Sal, Chris, and Charlie or Chris, Charlie, and Anthony's deli? They have something called the bomb sandwich. Ever if you're in Astoria, Queens, check this out. This sandwich, Nick, is the most insane sandwich ever. It's called the bomb. It's literally this this width if you're watching on youtube of just pure cold cut meats so they're just slicing off meats like stacking and piling and you 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 can't even bite through it in one thing it's just my kind of sandwich right there i don't think i would enjoy that. subway yeah i don't think i would enjoy that oh <laughs> little, little tangents and subway they're not sponsors or whatever but i know you're not a big subway guy so we'll just put it lightly and just say it like that so I'm there's a bunch of sub places out here. There's Firehouse Subs, there's Jimmy John's, and then there's Jersey Mike's. What place should I try if I'm looking to get a sub? So of course you're in the unlucky spot of having moved out of New Jersey where you would obviously go to a, a normal deli, but out of those three fast food chains, I think by far Jersey Mike's is the best. So Jimmy John's we had in Wisconsin and Madison. Jimmy John's does some things right. The bread's good. It's just like it, it's kind of just like a light sandwich, but they don't ha they don't put enough meat on their sandwich. Any of these places that go light on the meat, I'm not a big fan of. So I would rule them out. Jersey Mike's is a solid sandwich. That would be the one to go to. I've never had Firehouse, but I assume it's worse than Jersey Mike's. <laughs> okay, I'll just go with that assumption. And then uh, Sal and Queens, our good friend Sal, also asks Cordell Flott in the second half. Should he take over for Holmes in the slot, or should the Giants see if he can handle single high safety duties since he did some of that at LSU, allowing Belton and Love to move around more? It's a great question. And you're right. He did have some of those responsibilities at LSU. Ultimately, I think they drafted him. They want him to be their long term slot, and they want to kind of envision him in a role where he maybe can shift over play some single high safety it's a great question though because they don't i don't love or trust dane belton that role now with mckinney out i'm open to this i think, but I, think I don't there's trust a possibility him. for this but i don't trust flot there this is i don't know if i can trust flot there either. yeah but I just think getting athletically like he might have a better chance yeah, he's just getting back to practice you need to be able to to pack a punch when you're a safety he's like 175 pounds like soaking wet so i'm a little bit dubious with with that but i think in certain coverage packages and certain personnel packages you can do that i think but definitely not more as a somebody who can do it you know 50 percent of snaps or anything like that i really hate the fact that xavier mckinney's not there but i do like the fact that sal and queens pitched that idea and i hope maybe we see it once or twice and hopefully he can just get slowly ingratiated back into the lineup and if holmes continues to struggle with holding and and just coverage in general then he can uh possibly step in there and also man flock could play outside that's something that we might end up seeing as well if something were to happen to moreau or jackson yeah that's another interesting question thrown back outside i didn't i think he, i didn't think he was that bad outside against carolina he had obviously the one bad drive where more got him but 
other than that, I thought he was pretty good. Yes. Alex Zonic asks, should Mike Kafka even consider the Colts head coaching job? Is it too early for him? Yeah, I mean, look, the odds came out this week that Mike Kafka is actually the favorite for the Colts job. I guess that's going into next year. So I'm now just hoping Jeff Saturday knocks it out of the park somehow as a first-time head coach and just rips it up and, like, gets an extension because I don't want to lose Mike Kafka. Should he consider it? Yeah, man. I mean, look, you probably don't get too many opportunities as a coach to be a head coach. Maybe like the idea that you're saying, Alex, what I understand is he's not ready for it. He could use more seasoning, he could use more time. And in his mind, that would lead to a better opportunity. But he may never get that opportunity again. Right. That's the big problem. When the, when the NFL is hot for you, like they probably are right now for Mike Kafka, you probably should take advantage of it because who knows what could happen with the team you're on. The Giants, for example, in our case, maybe the offense regresses next year. Maybe people start to blame him. Oh, the play calling sucks. The offensive coordinator sucks. That happens so fast. People change on a dime. Remember the dude from Carolina two years ago who was the hottest thing in football uh, from LSU? What's his name again? Uh, Joe Brady. Joe Brady, who they were talking about as a head coach, like the number one head coach guy. And then months later, he's fired from his own team as coordinator. So it changes really fast. So I think in his case, if they were to offer him that job, he, in my mind, I would take it if I were him. But I'm just hoping it doesn't come to that. He has so much respect around the league. And, you know, he's a branch off of Andy Reid's tree. And what he's doing with the Giants, I really think, is opening a lot of people's eyes. I think the uncertainty at the Giants quarterback position might end up working against him to where he might jump at the first opportunity. Because we've seen head sure. coaching candidates like really high end coordinators in the past stay with their teams. I mean, Dan Quinn did it. He could have easily have had a job. He ended up staying with the Dallas Cowboys. And look, that defense is still just buzzing right now. And he's probably going to be one of those prime defensive head coaching candidates come the next cycle. So I think if the Giants had a more stable situation at the quarterback, I think he would be more comfortable in saying, hey, I'll do another year with Brian Dable here, continue to learn the role of the head coach. And then when I find the right opportunity, I'll leave. I'm hoping that that's a little bit glass half full the way I'm thinking there. But there have been really hot head coaching candidates in the past that have done that, especially with a team like the Colts, man. Like the Colts are not a situation you want to go to. That's very toxic. Right. I would not, I mean, if I was as talented as Mike Kafka and calling plays and was as sought after, I don't think I'd want an owner who is straight up meddling. And Frank Reich, dude, say what you want about Frank Reich. That guy can coach football. And it seems like over the last eight months or so, Jim Irsay just kind of went right in there and, and just meddled into we've seen what has happened since. Right. Great point. Okay. Let's see. Nick DeBellis asked, do you guys think we'll see Shane Lemieux and Nate Gates as starters this season? I think it can happen. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure if it will. I, I like the fact that they're back healthy. I think Nick Gates has already seen the football field and, and John Feliciano, if he gets dinged up or, or whatever, I think Nick Gates is probably that next up that next best option to plug in there. Whereas the guard position, Bredesen's out right now, but you still have Josh Azudu who start left guard and, and uh, Shane Lemieux. I, I, is he activated right now, Dan? Not I think yet. The, win the window, the window is dark. Window. Yeah, yeah, twenty-one the, day window. The window is ajar, so he just needs to squeak through it. <laughs> I think it's possible that that both of them could be out there, but I'm not certain if they if they will end up earning that, especially whenever Bredesen ends up coming back. I think Bredesen could realistically slide into that left guard spot. And also Shane Lemieux goes in there and he's still a liability like he was back in 2020 in pass protection. That's not going to be something that's going to fly. That would really suck too, having three guys who are a little bit suspect in terms of their anchor at right. uh, at the interior spots. Whereas Lemieux wasn't terrible with his anchor, but damn, did he lose the half-man relationship so quickly. And he, in terms of his 
hand combat was was not great. He allowed the quick club, quick club swim all the time against the Buccaneers. It really happened. That was one of the first games he started, though. But it was pretty prevalent throughout his uh, rookie season. Yeah, I think I look at it, Nick, and I'm thinking like, I don't think they're going to pull Feliciano the way he's playing at this point. Not that he's playing that great, but I just don't think they're going to pull him. He's a center. He has a, he has the he's the respect of everyone. He's making the calls with Daniel Jones. That's a key thing. Like he's on the same page as the quarterback and he's probably, and and honestly, there haven't been too many mental breakdowns from this offensive line as a whole or him. So I don't think that's going to happen. The question is left guard, right? Because we've seen some bad moments from Azudu. We don't know where Bredesen's at with the return with regards to his return from the injury. Maybe he just comes back and reclaims it and that's it. But the possibility could be Lemieux or Gates. Gates could potentially play guard for them at left guard. That's the other thing. That's where they had him, where he got hurt um, against Washington last year. They were trying to do Billy Price at center, which obviously didn't work uh, out for anybody involved. But, um, and damn, you know what? I wish we had BJ Hill right now. We probably don't have the money anyway to have him, but I would love to have him as just you, another horse. Do you know um, the Cardinals have Billy Price, Will Hernandez, and and Max Garcia all yeah. starting out there, you know how bad oh, they're all interior? starting. I think they did. Yeah, oh I think I think God, they all had to start disgusting. last. Yeah, because Rodney Hudson has been out. <laughs> That's their interior offensive line right now. That's so disgusting. It's not good out here for the uh, for the oh, birds. Man, I feel bad for Kyler Murray, but um, yeah. So maybe maybe we eventually see Gates at guard would be something at least intriguing to me. I think that's where it gets interesting. Like if Zudu keeps messing up, who's going to step in at left guard? Would it be Nick Gates? Or if Shane Lemieux is back, say, would it be Shane Lemieux? I think that's where it gets pretty yeah. interesting. And I don't think they're going to do it, Nick, because I think they value the consistency, the offensive line um, continuity, and just generally hasn't made too many mistakes. But I, I'd be interested if they consider or like at least explore the idea of potentially one of these guys over Glowinski at right guard. Because I don't think I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't really think Glowinski has that been that good. Personally, I'm not huge on Glowinski, what I've seen so far. Um, there's been some really bad moments of Glowinski, too. And there's been like very few great moments of Glowinski. So I'm intrigued by if that's even in play. I like Lewinsky as a run blocker. It's just pass protection, really. He yeah. just allows people to get into his shoulders way too much. He doesn't square and frame his blocks as well as you would hope a veteran with his type of experience would. So that's one issue that I have with Lewinsky for sure. Jake Oyala, I'm going to try to pronounce that. Sorry if I got that wrong, asks, with Galladay's return this week, do you think we'll see design plays to get him contested looks one-on-one downfield? That would be cool, right? <laughs> I mean, I still think back to the Galladay game last year with Mike Glennon in his first start. I think it was, I forgot who it was against. It wasn't Dallas. They played Dallas earlier in the year. It might have been LA, the Chargers. It was a Chargers game last year where it was like first drive. Glennon hooks up like a 16 yard back shoulder to Galladay. I'm like, how the hell is this the first back shoulder we've got in the Galladay era? And I just like, <laughs> give me a back shoulder in, against Houston. Figure it out. Find a way. Just, I don't care if it goes complete, incomplete. We've tried one back shoulder this year. It was that Slayton ball against, the, I think, the Jaguars that should have that where he got the helmet, the face in the helmet, and he got screwed up on this. I can't even remember any other back shoulder throws I think down. We had field. one other one, and we were like, oh, look at that back shoulder. I think it was to Darius Slayton. Maybe. But I mean, try some back shoulders. They're gimmies. They're gimmies for a lot of these quarterbacks and a lot of these passing offenses in the NFL. Let's, let's figure it out. Um, but yeah, I think we, that's a good question. Well, do you think the Giants will design anything for him? 
I mean, they might have design plays. I don't know if they're just going to design a play to get them one-on-one downfield. I think that's more of something that's going to happen by circumstance. Like, oh, they're in cover one. Okay, we check that they're in cover one. Yeah. All right, now I'm going to drop back. I'm going to look the safety off. And now Daniel Jones is going to throw the one-on-one ball. It's not necessarily a design play to Kenny Galladay, but I think if you can have a one-on-one matchup, depending on the leverage of the defender, like if they're playing inside and over the top, hit that back shoulder, man. Like Daniel Jones, Kenny Galladay, be on the same page and hit that back shoulder. But if they're playing, you know, in, in a press alignment and Kenny Galladay somehow wins outside or wins inside and then stacks and hopefully Daniel Jones could just put that ball right over his shoulder and we can see Kenny Galladay actually create an explosive play, which would be excellent. But I think there's going to be targets there for Kenny Galladay, but I don't think the offense is going to run through him or anything like that. I think the RPO game, I think you can see him on a quick slant route and, you know, they can take advantage of that, hopefully. I'll be interested to see if they even play him a lot of snaps, Nick. I, I'm worried about them still rotating mm. in sills and, and stuff like that, which I don't personally want at all at this point. I'd rather just golly get all of sill snaps personally, but we'll see what happens there. Um, so sound Eddie asks, is Abrams a panic ad after McKinney and Joel? Uh, Abrams was actually claimed, I believe. Who claimed in the Packers, right? Yeah. I believe so. I, I would have called that a probably a panic ad. I think Abrams sucks at football, personally. I think, I think, I think uh, Snooze Hound Eddie is referring to Terrell Burgess, who the Giants added. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, the Giants did add Terrell Burgess. He, but this question was a few days ago, though. It might have been uh, when before he was claimed Abrams. But Burgess will be interesting at, um, you know, that was a player in both Nick and I liked that out of Utah in college. I was always kind of questioning would his athleticism translate to the NFL. The Rams obviously didn't feel like it did, but now the Giants add him to their practice squad, so he could be someone interesting to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, it seems like the Giants, I mean, losing McKinney sucks and everything, but they have guys like Tony Jefferson's out right now, but whenever he returns, Landon Collins, Dane Bell, and they have some individuals who who can hopefully slide in and, and do something in the stead of Xavier McKinney. I like the addition, though. You let him pass through waivers, he passed through waivers, and now you add him and you just see exactly what he had. Like We covered him back coming out of the 2020 draft, uh, coming out of Utah. And I remember we we appreciated his film. I haven't watched anything on him since he's been in the NFL. But I think that the addition of a player like Terrell Burgess is just smart. Anytime you have lose a star player like Xavier McKinney, you should probably find somebody who might have value at that same position. We'll see what he can do on the practice squad. Yep, exactly. Um, and the other question was, will Galladay contribute? Does he have any fantasy relevance? And where do you see him in terms of production? I'd say production-wise, rest of season I would put him behind Slayton and Wandell as far as like yards production, but I think he could be the wide receiver three ahead of the rest of that pack, including Marcus Johnson. Um, fantasy wise, I don't see much relevance there at all. Yeah, I wouldn't start him this week. And honestly, in terms of fantasy football, I'm looking at Saquon Barkley and I'm looking at Wandell Robinson, and that's basically about it for the New York Giants. Maybe, Maybe the New York. Too. Well, yeah, but he's not here right now, just yeah. as of right now. But and then the defense is something that you can definitely look at right now with Houston and Detroit. But again, it's not like they're picking guys off left and right or anything like that. I would just hope that there's some creative blitz schemes out there. It also sucks that the Texans are going to more than likely run the football, which limits turnover possibility and sack opportunity. True. Okay. Rob, Rob Allen asks, Brees Hall signed a four-year $9 million deal. So can so we can say most running backs make 6 to $8 million their first four years. Saquon will have made 38 already. Do you think this affects what he might want in the second contract? No, I don't, Rob. I think ultimately he'll just him and his agency, Brock Nation, which by the way also represents Andrew Thomas. The Giants cannot lowball him. They're just going to use the market, right? What was the last big running back free agent deal 
or extension. That's what will be leveraged. And I know in Saquon's mind, he believes he's the best running back in the NFL. So I know he's going to want the top NFL running back money. I know in Saquon is managing mind. The injury history means absolutely nothing. The longevity, all the studies, whatever you throw at him, mean nothing. He's not taking some kind of cheap deal to sign with the Giants, in my opinion. I just don't think that's going to happen. Just a guess. I don't know. Maybe he will. Highly doubt it, but it's possible, I guess. But so I think he'll look at the top of the market deals and he'll be gunning to be the highest paid running back in the NFL. I don't think injury history will play a factor. I don't think any of the other stuff will play a factor either. I mean, longevity wasn't a factor when the teams resigned Christian McCaffrey and whoever else. No, and if we're looking at these contracts too, Dan, Christian McCaffrey makes the most right now in terms of average per year at just north of $16 million. And then Alvin Kamara and Ezekiel Elliott make $15 million. And then Dalvin Cook and Derrick Henry make 26 or 12.6, 12.5 respective. Saquon Barkley is going to want more than Christian McCaffrey. And the way he's yep. playing right now, he deserves that. That He shouldn't accept anything less than that. He has all the leverage as of right now if he finishes the season healthy and he looks like he did in the first eight games. Yeah, I've heard the number I've heard float is 19 per year. So we'll see what happens yeah. there. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Yeah, to allocate to a running back that's an injury history, of course. And if you are Brian Dable, do you say Daniel Jones is my guy or are you thinking I made Jones serviceable get me someone with elite traits and I can make them into Josh Allen. That's the second question Rob Allen asks. That's a good question, Rob. I mean, if you're Brian Dable, if we're Brian Dable, I'll put myself in his shoes. And I don't think it's just a Brian Dable decision. I think it's a Dable decision. I think it's a Kafka decision. I think it's a, uh, uh, John, a Joe Shane decision and also a John Merritt decision. I don't think we all give enough credit to the owner and the, and the impact he has on these kind of decision makings. Um, so, these kind of decisions, I should say. Um, yeah, it's tough. I, I guess it just comes down to if they, if that group that I just mentioned believes that Jones has what they would consider elite traits. I think from our perspective, um, yours and mine and Nick's, because I've heard Nick talk about this, so I think I can say this with certainty. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Nick. We don't personally believe Daniel Jones has elite quarterback traits, but there may be other traits that Dable and that collective group view as elite, such as like, you know, what Joe Shane said. And I, I don't want to take too much of what he says to the media at face value, because there's just no way he's going to tell the truth if he didn't believe that in some of these things. But like he does believe he did say, I really put a lot of uh, credence into the got to have it moments like those comeback drives that Daniel Jones has done this season. I know, you know, a couple of them were really just Saquon Barkley running the ball. Uh, a couple play action rollouts, but some of them were all him. The Green Bay comeback drive was all him, basically. Saquon Barkley went out, so he puts a lot. If, if they put a lot into that, the leadership, the coming in every day early, though, I kind of always feel like that's kind of the bare minimum for quarterbacks. If your quarterback isn't doing that stuff, like maybe the Kyler Murray's of the world, or and I don't want to speculate too much on that, then you're just never going to really make it. And to me, you're not. I don't want to. I, to me, it's a floor. Like when I ever hear the stuff about, oh my God, he comes in at seven thirty in the morning on his bye week. Like I'm just like, okay, but good. That's the floor for Francesco. They have to. <laughs> you know, it's a tough bar to get over to be a quarterback in the NFL. So. But if they do feel like there are elite traits that he has, then they may then they may already feel like he is their guy. I, it's so hard for for me to guesstimate on where they stand on Jones, to be honest with you, because I, I think we could speculate on it, Nick and I. But what do we really know about what how they actually feel behind the scenes about this dude? Because you are right, and I'll just close it by saying this: you are right in the sense that 
it's not like this is not what they think is ideal from them. They don't want their offense to be a 175 yard to 200 yard passing offense a game. They want 250 to 300. That's what they want. They want to move the ball through the air. They don't want to be 31st or what is it, 32nd in explosive plays with 17. And, and like Nick said, the majority of those have been just via Saquon Barkley. Like they want explosive plays in the pass game and they want to throw the ball at will. And so maybe they feel if they can get Jones the right receivers that he can do that. But if they don't feel that way, that's when this comes into play. So it, it's just hard to know. I didn't give you a great answer. I'm sorry, Rob. Well, they want to be more two dimensional and they just haven't been True. quite yet. Like they're, they're, their coaching is being able, their coaching is putting them in a position to where they can win these football games. And Daniel Jones is executing the assignments that he's being asked, but they're not a traditional drop back passing offense yet, which is something I'm sure every coaching staff would want. Now, is that an indictment on Daniel Jones? Not necessarily. There are other factors that are grouped into it, but he's certainly going to be one person that they're going to look at and evaluate after these next nine games and then come to a conclusion on what the hell they want to do in the future. Yep. Okay. Henso Chilliers asks, do you guys think Neil is the biggest reason why we couldn't execute a straight drop back passing game and thus our <laughs> gimmicky plays were easier to predict? Wow, this is a very prompt and apt question from what we were just talking about. No, I don't think it was just Neil, but I think he was a part of it. I think it was the fact that Dallas was sending four and the Giants with five and six couldn't block them. Now, Evan Neal was one reason for that, but Glowinski was struggling. Feliciano was struggling. And whoever the hell was playing left guard, I think it was Ben Bredesen in that game, was struggling as well. It was really just Andrew Thomas who was being really solid in those situations. And I think... So this coach, Nick, I think the question it was framed weird, but I think I just want to cut you off before you go too much further. I think that question was actually the opposite: was being when Neil was out. Is that why we we've been like we can't go to the straight like they didn't uh, execute it against the Seahawks? I guess would be the question. Or at least that's how I read it. Well, I was just going to kind of go into a whole okay, okay, okay. diatribe yeah, yeah, of what I feel like happened after week three. Yep. Like what ended up happening, I think, is the Giants were like, well, we couldn't do anything against Dallas's pass rush. But Daniel Jones ended up rushing for, I think, over 70 yards. And we were able to move the football pretty well. And we almost even had a chance to win that football game, which is kind of ridiculous to think about. Yep. So why don't we just consistently use Daniel Jones's legs? And then the next week against Chicago, what did we see? Just Daniel Jones, play action, bootleg, play action, bootleg, play action, bootleg, play action, bootleg. We saw something similar against Green Bay. Right. And then. And then we just saw that against Baltimore as well. And we're just like, holy crap, like, let's just use Daniel Jones' legs. And now against Seattle, it didn't really work because Seattle really hunkered down and focused on Daniel Jones. But in terms of Evan Neal, I, I don't think Evan Neal is the reason why the New York Giants had to do that. And I also don't think Evan Neal being out is the reason why uh, they, they transitioned to that. I just think it was a good method to to take pressure off of the Giants rushing attack while also picking up yardage with, I would say, Daniel Jones's best trait, which is his overall athletic ability. Yeah, I think Nick nailed that pretty well. I don't have too much more to add. I think he hit that. Mason Buchanan asked, is there any free agents outside of Odell Beckham who could have, who could make an immediate impact? Well, I don't know where he's at, Mason, but uh, I think Will Fuller would be one of them. I don't know what's going on with him like at all these days. Is he just out of the NFL, Nick? I don't really know. But Will Fuller is somebody who I think would be actually like a perfect fit, maybe even a better fit than Odell Beckham if he got his mind on and wanted to come to a playoff potential team like the Giants, have your chance at be at, you know having a big role in the offense early on. Um, but that would be like the first person that comes to mind because he can get open at will down the field. He creates separate separation vertically. He just brings raw speed to the table, which in my mind just helps you so much schematically. So he would be the guy for me. 
Yeah, I don't really have anybody that's just jumping out at me. Ideally, I think you'd want somebody who has experience with either Mike Kafka or Brian Dable. More probably more specifically with with Brian Dable, since it's a lot of his verbiage and his terminology. And players that kind of jump out are, are guys who are really older, like Cole Beasley and Emmanuel Sanders, are guys who don't necessarily stretch the field. I think Wolf Fuller would be that name of somebody who you would bring in, but I don't really know what the heck is going on with Wolf Fuller right now. But it'd be great if the Giants could find somebody. And it would also be amazing, Dan, if Odell Beckham doesn't end up going to Dallas. That would suck. That would suck. Mohammed Gacha asks, what would a contract extension for Dexter Lawrence look like? I'm talking years guaranteed money. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe something in like the DeForest Bunkner range. That was four years, 84 billion. Maybe something similar to what the Giants gave Leonard Williams before they kept kicking the can back and pushing that contract back. Um, that's probably what it's going to take. So I would say maybe in the 20 to 21 million per year range, as far as guaranteed money. Well, just looking at it now, Buckner, and this was a few years ago when this was signed, but he got uh, 44 million guaranteed. I know nowadays agents are really trying to push for the guarantees to to be higher, but maybe something in that four in that 20 per year, half you know, 40 million guaranteed range. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe something like Buckner or Chris Jones, maybe even a little more. But I don't even know if the Giants are going to do it this year. I'm wondering, and it all depends yeah. on what the Giants are going to do with Saquon and with Daniel Jones and with some of these other pieces that they have. I'm wondering if the Giants just allow Dexter Lawrence to play out that final year and just maybe be like, "Hey, we're going to take care of you. Like you're in our long-term plans, but we can't do it quite yet." Or if they backload the contract, like, I'm I'm a little bit curious if they uh, want to get a little creative with Dexter Lawrence since they do have him under control for another season, right? So that's something that uh, we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to see how that goes down. But I think it's going to cost a pretty penny if he keeps playing this way. And if the Giants do decide to do what I just suggested and <laughs> he balls out next year, that's going to be he's going to I don't know if he'll reset the market because of what Aaron Donald gets paid, but he's going to command a lot of money. Well, the you other know? advantage to like re-signing him next year instead would be one, you get out ahead of like the new deals in the NFL. Because obviously the the sooner you sign the deal, same thing goes for Andrew Thomas. The, the as the new deals come in, they get paid yep. more and stuff like that with the new TV contracts coming in for the NFL and the salary cap rising. The other thing is they could, I mean, they probably don't want to get too deep and heavy into this game again, but if they do re-sign Dexter Lawrence next year, instead of let him play out that, that option, they can lower the cap hit in the first year to try to fit other players. Like we've seen them do with Galladay and, and, and contracts of that nature. So they do get a little more flexibility from that standpoint. Yeah. I just, I believe he's probably more than likely a part of the long-term plans I do here. Too. Young boy caps ask if the season ended today with Daniel Jones playing how he has played, what type of contract do you think would be available to him on the open market? The view on him has certainly changed after how this season has gone. And there are plenty of teams in need of quarterback that might be willing to take a chance. Do you think he could get something close to a Kirk cousins deal or a Jameis Winston deal? Yeah, we discussed this earlier, Nick and I, um, you know, we both are pretty steadfast in believing that the that the open mark I guess the opinion hasn't we're not sold the opinion has changed I guess on him we with opinion I guess as fans and and maybe the Giants has changed in some ways but not everyone is watching this Giants team closely right like not everyone is grinding Daniel Jones or you know is watching the Giants grinding the tape things of that nature I think a lot of these teams on the open market if he hit the open market would be like 
do we want to pay this dude 30 million or 20 million or whatever million a year? Or do we want to just take a chance on one of these rookies in the draft who may have better traits in their mind anyway, let alone they get to restart the rookie contract. So, cause that's what every, every team wants did a rookie quarterback that hits immediately. They, they have them under contract for cheap for four or five years. Nobody wants these 35 million against the cap type hits from these players. Like you'll, you'll do it. If you really believe in the guy and you have like a Rogers or a Lamar or a Mahomes type talent, you obviously are going to do it. And maybe the giants will do it with a Jones. We've seen teams do it with a cousins and a car. It hasn't worked out for them. Winston deals a little bit less. I don't know. I would think like 20 million would be like the bidding. I just don't think these teams are going 30, 35 million for this guy that they don't know anything about. He has four years in the NFL at this point, even this year, I'm not so sure people are like, gunning to get some dude who's throwing for 200 yards a game and running the ball. I just don't, with an injury history. I just, I don't see it personally. I, I never have, but I like, look, I like the progress Jones has made. I want to make that clear. That's not me saying that he hasn't made progress. It's just me saying that. I don't know why some people, I, I don't know why the perception is that his cheat, his perception has changed so much around the NFL. I guess that's how I would phrase it. So the Jameis deal is actually interesting. The Jameis deal is two years, 28 million, but with right. 21 million guaranteed. So it's a little bit more on the guaranteed money, but it's a little bit lower on the overall cap with just 28. Like, I think that is an, a ridiculous type of contract right there. Like people are pitching 30, 35 million, which is in the Kirk Cousins range. I think he extended for 35 million for a one year. Like, I don't think there's a demand for, for Daniel Jones for that, but this Jameis Winston contract, I think that's somewhat fair. But again, what other team is offering Daniel Jones that type of contract right now? I'm not really 100% sure. We're going to have to see at the end of the season. We've kind of beaten this dead horse all throughout the podcast. Yeah, it's a question that's going to keep coming up over and over and over again forever. I just think it is important to know. A lot of people compare like the Kirk Cousins and Daniel Jones. Kirk Cousins has threw for 33 touchdowns and seven interceptions last year with 4,200 yards. The year before, 35 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, 4,200 yards. The year before, 26 touchdowns, six interceptions, 30 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. I mean, those are big-time numbers. Daniel Jones hasn't come anywhere close to that from a touchdown-interception ratio, from a yards-per-attempt ratio. So I don't know if he could really be viewed in that range right now um, as far as contracts go. So I think something a bit above the – in between the Jameis Winston deal that you outlined, Nick, and and the Cousins range is where I would think that maybe the – the, the price would be, I just, I still have to figure out what team is going to do. So he talks about all these QB needy teams, the Packers, if Rogers retires, I do not see any chance. They opt to, to sign Jones for 30 million instead of just play Jordan love. And we could go team by team and figure this out, but there, I don't know how many teams are going to rather take the gamble on Jones than just restart the rookie clock with a draft pick. I don't know if people realize that Kirk Cousins has thrown for over 4,000 yards in seven straight seasons. People people discredit the F out of Kirk Cousins. They don't, I mean, look, the whole thing with Cousins, which we get into at some point, Nick, is is that even what you want? Like, I personally don't even think that's what I like. You know how I feel about quarterbacks. I don't even want that ceiling. But there is some there is something to his level of play. Like he has played better than people give him credit for. I still don't know if I even want that though. That's I'm so nihilistic a quarterback, dude. Like I just don't think it's <laughs> worth it at all to have these dudes who just have no ceiling type. It's so tough, man. It's just it's tough to find consistency in the NFL. The only teams right now that are consistent are the Bills and the Chiefs. The Eagles came up this year, but before the teams that were great last year that are great again are the Bills and the Chiefs. And what do they have? Two of the greatest quarterbacks in the NFL, the two best probably. And it's like it's hard to find that. We're not just going to find that on a tree here, right? Like we're not just going to grow that next, next door. Um, maybe, you know, at some point Daniel Jones can get to a level just below that, hopefully. 
Uh, but yeah, it, I don't know, man. It's tough to find consistency. They also have good coaching staffs too, because we're seeing guys like Justin Herbert. I mean, you could see the talent all day, but that coaching staff is is trash. I think a part of that issue is the receivers are all hurt and Slater's out, and they're down to their third string. And that that kind of goes yeah. to like the Daniel Jones argument though too. But like Daniel Jones at least right now has the coaching staff. He didn't before. And he has like, the elite left tackle at least. Yeah, and he has the elite left and Barkley. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I'm talking about like before when he didn't have those. Yeah, when he had nothing. Like that's right. what Justin Herbert was uh, was going through. Right. But right now, you look at Justin Herbert and you're like, oh my god, with Brandon Staley as your head coach, and then with Lombardi calling plays, and the yeah. A dot is so freaking low. They're not trying to push the feet. They're not trying to push anything vertically. Is that because the offensive line just like talking about Jason Garrett all over again? Yeah, it know? does feel like that. It's exact. That's what happens when you get when you get to those situations there with no talent around the player. But um. Yeah, man, it's inter- it'll be interesting to see what happens there. I, I personally would lean toward, I think the Giants will resign both these guys before they hit the open market, but we'll, we'll find out. Anyway, that's all we have for t- on today's mailbag. Thank you again for tuning in to the Big Blue Banter podcast. Keep it locked and loaded. Sunday night comes the first reaction show in two weeks. I'm excited to talk Giants football. We better get that freaking win against the best.